The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Tonight's talk is going to be on the aggregates. So, dig in. When you read the Buddha's description of uh, the first noble truth, he talks about the various forms of stress or suffering. And he starts out with things that we're familiar with, as birth, illness, death, um, not getting what you want, having to live with people you don't like, um, not getting to live with people you do like. And then he summarizes them by says, says, suffering comes down to five clinging aggregates. That's where it gets technical. Of course, the question is, what are these aggregates? Um, and why would he analyze things in terms of those five categories? The word aggregate in Pali, kanda, can mean category, it can mean pile, it can mean heap or mass. Um, and the Buddha lists five particular things that he lists as masses or heaps or aggregates. Um, there's form, which is any physical phenomenon, particularly it's the the form of your body as you feel it from within. There's earth, which is the solidity, water, liquid properties in the body, fires, the warmth, breath is the energy. But it also refers to just any physical thing you see or can touch. That's, that's the first category of form or rupa. The second one is vedana, it's feeling tone, the feeling tone of pleasure or pain, neither pleasure nor pain. Third one is perception or sanya, which um, in perception in the sense of when you see something, you perceive it as something. You, know, you look at the wall and you say wall. You look at the light, you say light. That kind of perception. In other words, where you're putting a label on something. The fourth one is sankara, which I translate as fabrication. Sometimes you see it trans- translated as formations. It's the intentional part of the mind. It's where you come up with ideas about what you want about something, or take your experience and you put it in a shape that you want, it, want to put it in. And then finally there's vinyana, or consciousness, which the Buddha classifies as a kind of activity. It's something, it's an active pro- principle. But all of these are activities. He defines form as the process of decaying, um, weight in our feeling as, a, as, as the activity of feeling, perception is the activity of perceiving and so on down the line. So it's not things. We're not dealing with little bits of you know, gravel or aggregates here. We're actually talking about activities, primarily of the mind. And there's an intentional element in all of these things. If fabrication underlies everything else, our experiences has the potential to have form or feeling or perceptions, fabrications or consciousness. And there's part of the mind that wants these things and fabricates them into being. You take the potential and you actualize it. Now the question is, where did the Buddha get this list? I mean, it seems pretty arbitrary, a way of analyzing your experience into these five categories, form, feeling, perception, fabrications, and consciousness. Because there are lots of other ways you could analyze your mind, or the activities of the mind. Um, and tonight I'd like to talk about what I think is the underlying activity that the Buddha is talking about. Because the way we understand our mind usually refers to an activity that we engage in very often and we're used to it and we tend to observe our mind as it's engaged in that activity and that's how we understand it. I'll give you another example from, um, from Western philosophy which uh, Cicero, the famous orator, had a theory about human psychology has basically three functions. There's attention and there's will and there's memory. 
Now, the reason he analyzed it, psychology into these three functions was because he was an orator and he was trying to influence people. And he said the best way to influence people is, one, get their attention, and then two, try to make them remember things that you agree on or principles that you want them to think about as you're going to try to persuade them, in other words, in order to get them to will what you want to will. And so this, for, for an orator, like tonight, I want you to remember certain things, I want you to pay attention, and I want you to come out of here with a certain you know, idea in your mind. Um, and with, in Cicero's case, though, this, he was more emphasis on the getting, people to, getting people persuaded, because after all, he was a lawyer. Um, <laughs> and that's, what he was, that's his main activity. And so he would observe human psychology as a lawyer would observe human psychology. What can you draw on, like in the jury's memory, about what they believe in, what they think is right, what they think is wrong, um, and then direct their attention to what you want them to pay attention to so you get a particular outcome, i.e. you want your client either, either you want your, your client declared not guilty or you're the prosecutor and you want them to be found guilty. In other words, you've got an aim in mind. Um, so, so for a lawyer, those would be the three functions of human psychology. This is a particularly interesting list for me because you find it cropping up in lots of other places as well. Um, in the Middle Ages, they took over Cicero's ideas and they basically said, well, this is how the human mind works. And when they tried to train, uh, explain the Trinity, they would pull out these three functions. They say, just as the, as, your, as the human mind has three functions, God has three functions, you know. Um, but more relevant to our, our discussion tonight is, I was reading a... a a concert pianist one time. His name was Alfred Brendel. You may know him. Um, he used to. He came to the States a couple years back for his farewell, farewell concert tour, and he was giving an interview, and I was reading his interview, and he was talking about the psychology of being, of playing the piano. And he says, basically, there are three functions that you have to engage in while you're playing the piano. One is you have to hold in mind an idea of what you want the piece to look like, how you want it to sound. And then you have to pay attention to how you're playing, and then based on what you he hear yourself playing and what you want out of the piece, then you have to decide how you're going to play the next note or the next chord or the next passage, the next phrase. And he talked about, again, memory, attention, will as the three functions. In this case, it, it has to do with the skill that you develop as you're trying to monitor your playing while you're playing. In other words, this is how you listen to yourself play so that you become a better um, pianist. Closer to home, we find it also in the Buddhist descriptions of how you practice mindfulness. There are three qualities, he says, that you bring to the practice of mindfulness. There's ardency, alertness, and mindfulness. And mindfulness, you may remember, means keeping something in mind. Alertness is when you're paying attention to the present moment, and ardency is when you're actually trying to do something. In this case, you're trying to get the mind to settle down. You're trying to get the mind to stay with the breath. You're trying to get it to do whatever you plan, whatever you want out of it. And I think it's interesting that you can look at the way you meditate in terms of these three qualities, ardency, alertness, mindfulness. Either you are a lawyer trying to persuade yourself to settle down with the breath, <laughs> and you're giving yourself reasons as to why you want to stay there. You're trying to capture your attention. This is something you really, really want to pay attention to, this breath coming in and going out. And you remember the various things you've learned about why you want to stay with the breath and also techniques you've learned in the past for how you can stay with the breath. And then you try to do it ardently. In other words, you really try to do it as skillfully as possible so you actually can get the mind to settle down. 
Or, you, instead of looking at your mind as a, a lawyer while you're meditating, you can look at it as an ex, expert pianist. You're looking at your breath right now, how has it been going, what do you need to change so you can p- push the med- meditation in the direction where you want it to go. So those are one way of looking at the mind based on certain activities. If you're a lawyer, you tend to look at human psychology in those three terms. If you're a skilled artist or skilled pianist or any kind of musician, you also tend to look at the mind in those three terms. So the question is, when the Buddha is talking about the aggregates, what is he looking at? What, is, what activity is he you know, sort of analyzing and saying, this is a natural way of seeing how the mind works? And I think the activity he's referring to is the activity of feeding. The, the image of feeding is really, really basic in the Buddha's teachings. In fact, all of Indian thought up to the Buddha's time was basically on how are you going to feed yourself when you, after death. You know, they, they believed that in order to live as a being, you have to feed. And the question came, well, if you're going to be reborn, how are you going to feed there? How are you going to provide that food? And there's a lot of analysis. in. You look at the Upanishads and you look at the other literature that developed around them. And there's a lot of concern about how you're going to feed. Because beings have to feed. And how do you in, ensure that you're going to have a good, long supply of food up there if you go to heaven? Because otherwise you're going to fall back down again. And... They had various ideas about what was happening to you. My favorite one is the one that, basically their idea was, one of the Upanishads says that heaven is actually in the moon, and the devas are up there feeding on the moon, and and you think immediately of the moon as blue cheese, right? (laughs) And this is why the moon looks so kind of mottled, because, you know, devas have been eating it. Um, (laughs) But your right to feed up there depends on the merit from the, you know, from the the sacrifice that the the Brahmins did. You can see where this is coming from. Um, and the idea being that if once you la- ran out of merit, then you had to f- come back down again. And the question is, how do you come back down from the moon? And they said, you come back down as rain. And then as rain, you, tur- you feed a plant. And then the flat- plant feeds an animal, and then you're going to get reborn as that kind of animal. Which means if you're lucky, you get to be eaten by a human being. And then you get to go through the cycle again. But there's a lot of speculation in the Buddhist, in pr- pr- prior to the Buddha about feeding as the primary human activity. And the Buddha picked that, picked that up, and he said, this is really a good analogy for what the mind is doing, how we identify ourselves. And we're not only what we eat, we're also how we eat. Um, he talks about the very first question that it was asked in the novice. There's a series of questions, what is one, what is two, what is three, what is four, up to ten. And the most interesting of the group, I mean, three is the three kinds of feeling, four is the four noble twos, five is the five aggregates. The most interesting one, is, of course, is what is one. He's not talking about oneness as a universal principle. He says all beings subsist on food. Everybody has to eat. In fact, that's what it is to be a being. You have to eat. He identifies your identity of yourself as feeding on or latching onto or clinging to these five aggregates. That's how you define yourself. Once you've defined yourself, you have to sustain that identity. And you sustain the identity by feeding, not only physically, but also emotionally. We take a lot of emotional feeding from one another. We'll talk about this in a minute. And you stop and think about, well, what do you do when you eat? On the one hand, you've got this body that you identify with, that's your form. And you've also got potential foods out there, all these different things that you could, eat, that you could put in your mouth. And you're driven to do this because, on the one hand, there is the feeling of hunger that you have, and also the feeling of pleasure that comes when you satisfy that hunger. So it's the, the feeling there which is driving this need to feed, or your felt need to feed. 
Then there's a question of recognizing what you can eat and what you can't eat. This is where sanya or perception comes in. Now, the little children, you've, you've seen them, if you've had a child you know, crawling across the floor and sticking all kinds of dangerous things in their mouths. Okay, and after a while they have to learn what you can eat, what you can't eat. And this is an important part of growing up as a human being, is recognizing what's food and what's not food. First physically and then also emotionally. Um, the fourth part is fabrication. A lot of food cannot be eaten just as it is. And if you took a raw egg and just stuck it in your mouth whole, you'd gag. Okay? You have to learn that you have to fix your food. You have to fabricate it. You have to fix it in certain ways. You have to cook it. You have to chop it. You have to do all these various things to make it edible, make it enjoyable. And then finally there's consciousness, which is your awareness of all these things that's kind of guiding the process. So those are the five aggregates as parts of the process of feeding. And I think it's useful to think of them in this term because it gives you a sort of an intuitive sense of what the Buddha is talking about. You've got, the, you've got the body that needs to be fed, and you've also got these things out there that you're going to feed on, the forms. There's the feeling of hunger that's driving you, so you can get the feeling of pleasure that comes when you're full. Um, there's the perception, okay, this is something I can eat, this is something I can't eat. This is edible, this is not edible. If you find something that's you know, not quite ready to go in your mouth, how are you going to fix it? And you start fabricating thoughts about it. And that's not the only fabrication you do around eating. You can start, if you're, if you're going out for a meal after this talk tonight, you've probably thought about where you want to go, what kind of food you want, what ki- and how, how good it's going to taste. You're already fabricating. And they say, no, I don't like that, I want to fix with this. And there's a lot of fabrication that goes on in the mind around what you want. You have to identify back up to the perceptional bit, it's not only identifying what's food out there, but also identifying the need in here. You have a sense, okay, am I, are, you, are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Do you want something salty? Do you want something sweet? That's something you have to perceive. You have to be able to label these, these needs, identify them. Then you fabricate the food in, in order to meet that felt and perceived need, and then your consciousness is what's basically looking, on all the, looking at all of these things. So this is how we because as a being our main activity is to feed, this is what the Buddha is talking about when he's talking about the aggregates. We suffer because we cling to the aggregates. Not only do we use them to feed, we also feed off of them. Like, like as I gave you the case just now with the fabrication, you know, thinking about the meal. You can think about a meal for several hours. You cannot eat the meal for several hours. The same thing with a lot of the other sensual pleasures that we go for. Sometimes they're really quick. And, but you can figure out all kinds of ways of elaborating in your mind beforehand and then, of course, of reviewing it afterwards. This is, there's a lot of activity defining ourselves around this. We, we really latch on to this kind of activity. The Buddha said we cling to these aggregates. We, the word for clinging actually is another word for feeding. And he talks about that. He uses analogies not only for the way you know, we feed on physical food, but also the way a seed feeds on soil to gain its nutrients from the soil, pulls its nutrients out of the soil so it can create a plant. And then also the way a fire feeds on fuel. These are some of the sort of the governing images in the Buddhist teaching. Um, and I think it's useful to think about the, the various ways we feed emotionally as well, not just on physical food. You might take the same analysis and think about a relationship. Um, you know, parents feed on their children, children feed on their parents. It starts out, of course, literally, the the child is feeding on the mother when the child is in her womb, and then continues feeding 
feeding off of her, off of her milk. But it continues. There's first, there's the sense, okay, you recognize your parents. These are the people. This is what they look like. These are the ones I can run to for safety. These are the ones I can run to for protection. These are the ones that are going to feed me, give me nourishment, emotionally and physically. And then, of course, there's the, the feeling the child has when the parents are far away, and then this feeling when they're with the parents, the, 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 you know, the felt lack when the parents are gone, the felt pleasure when the parents are there. Recognizing the parents, recognizing what the parents can do for you, um, and then manipulating the parents. This is the fabrication part. Uh, it starts with crying, and then it gets more subtle. <laughs> um, and, and then, of course, there's the consciousness. The consciousness, the, the activity, which is trying to govern all these things that so that the child can survive. You can look at the way the parents feed off the children the same way. You recognize the children. Children have this way of looking really cute, so you allow them to feed off you. You recognize them, of course, as your child, and you're extremely attached to the child. The child's appearance, the, f- the feelings you have around the child, the recognition you have of what the child has done for you, what you think the child can do for you in the future, of course, the way, the way you manipulate the child as well. All this, there's kind of an emotional feeding that goes on. And we feed not only in that, you could you could look at your, any addiction you have in the same terms. There's, certain, there's something you're really fixated, I need this, because you've associated a particular feeling with that, you perceive that as the way that you're going to overcome that feeling of lack that you feel when it's gone, or when you don't have that particular thing you're addicted to. And then there's all the manipulation of trying to get that particular pleasure. My brother's an alcoholic, and um, he came to the monastery once. He had to do without it for three nights. It was you know, a, a real feat of heroism in, in his case. But we drove into the town of Valley Center after picking him up, and he picked up on something I had never picked up on, which was where the alcohol was sold in Valley Center. <laughs> I had never really noticed. But as we were driving in, and we happened to drive past Fat Ivor's barbecue place, you know, and, and the first thing he asked me is, can I borrow the monastery car tomorrow? And, and I do know my brother well enough to say, no. <laughs> You're staying at the monastery until you leave three days from now. So there is that kind of manipulation. If there's something you're really hungry for, you can figure out how you're going to get it. That's the, that's the fabrication. That's the sankara. And then, of course, there's the consciousness that underlies all these things. We can even feed off a of status. There was a commercial I saw a while back. I think it was called the BMW Effect, where this guy wearing a suit is coming out in the parking lot, and he sees his BMW, and, just, and a shiver goes through him, just at the glance, just looking at the car, not even getting into it yet, just looking at it. Um, and you know what, of course, it symbolizes, you know, I can afford a BMW. Um, whether you really need a BMW or not, that's another question, but it's the, it's the form, the feeling, the perception, the fabrication that goes around that. This is what the Buddha is talking about when he talks about how we identify, how we cling to these activities. He says, but there's also suffering, because you know, feeding in, inherently in, entails suffering. There's always that sense of lack, and even when you fill up the lack for time being, it's never permanent. There's always going to be something lacking. It's going to come back again, and so you have to be constantly worried about where's the next meal coming from, physically, emotionally, whatever. I like to camp, and you know, one of the restrictions on you as a camper is how much food you can carry. And you think about what it would be like if you could camp without having to eat, you know. You'd be a lot freer. 
the fact that we have to feed places a huge burden on us. I mean, most of your jobs, I'm sure, if you didn't have to eat, you wouldn't put up with that crap. <laughs> but the fact that you need to feed on these things, or with the various things that you define as the things that you need to feed, or how you need to feed, that's what keeps you punching in the time clock. And so there's a lot of suffering that goes into this need to feed, and this is what the Buddha is talking about. When he talks about the five aggregates are suffering, they're stressful. And so what's his solution? He doesn't start out by telling you not to feed. We, you know, we can't just starve yourself because that's not going to solve anything. Basically, he gives you better feeding habits. Particularly, he teaches you the Eightfold Path, which is a form of fabrication. It's also, um, it's, a, it's food for the mind. When the Buddha talks about the various factors of the path, the one that he talks about as food is the factor of right concentration, the sense of well-being, the sense of rapture, the sense of pleasure that comes when the mind really settles down and you have this immediate sense of well-being that you can draw on. And it turns out this is what gives you the energy to keep going with the path. It's got this image of a fortress on the frontier. Mindfulness is the gatekeeper of the fortress who knows who to let in, who not to let out, who remembers the enemy, who's the enemy, who's the friend. Um, right effort is the soldiers in the fortress. He's got this image of um, your discernment or your wisdom is the plaster wall on the fortress. Now the reason you need a plaster wall is you want a wall that doesn't have any handholds or footholds. You want a wall that basically doesn't allow the defilements to get into the fortress. Okay. And then the food for everybody, the food for the soldiers, the food for the gateman, is the four levels of jhana, the four levels of right concentration. He compares the different levels, and they, each level gets better and better until the fourth jhana is honey and ghee and sugar. Um, the really good stuff. Um, but it's, this is the food that we eat as we practice. But also, it's the point when the mind has been well fed, the question comes often, why would it be that insights you gain into the mind when it's in concentration would also have an effect on the mind give insight into the mind when it's outside of concentration. The fact is, okay, you're basically giving the mind a new place to feed, but you're also giving a position where it can look at itself while it's feeding on these things very clearly, and you can see the process. And it turns out that the five, that states of right concentration are made up of the same five aggregates. There's the form that when you're dealing with the breath, say, there's the form of the body. The, the breath is also part of that form. There's the feeling of pleasure, the feeling of rapture, the feeling of equanimity that you're trying to encourage as you stay focused on the breath. Then there's the perception of the breath that holds you there. And then there's the fabrication. And when you're talking to yourself about, is the breath feeling good? Where can I change it? Does this feel good? Does that feel good? What can I do? That kind of discussion that goes on in your mind, that's the fabrication. And even when you drop the discussion, just staying with the breath, there's that element of will that you're going to stay right here. That also is fabrication. And then finally there's the consciousness that is aware of all these things. So basically, you've got those five aggregates all concentrated in one place, where you can watch them clearly. And as you're getting the mind more and more into concentration, part of the practice is to look at the drawbacks of the mind outside of concentration. In other words, the Buddha wants you to get addicted to this kind of food. So that you keep coming back, coming back, coming back, and seeing that this is where you're finding much better pleasure than you could outside of the concentration. So he's basically cutting off all of your other alternative routes for looking for pleasure, looking for food, focusing it here, and then finally wants you to say, okay, even this has its drawbacks. This still in involves feeding. And when you can finally get rid of that attachment, 
learn how to let go of the identity that you build up around that. That's when the mind is freed. And it's interesting when the mood is talking about the process of freeing the mind from this, these various attachments, these various clingings. The word he uses is nibida, which mean, we usually translate it as disenchantment, but it also means you're sick and tired of eating something. It's the feeling you have when you've had, you know, you've gorged yourself on cheesecake and somebody comes in and brings you another cheesecake and you say, nah, nah. And it's not hatred. It's not that you hate it. It's just you've, you've had enough. You realize, again, this is enough. I've, I've fed enough on this. It's not worth it anymore. And from that sense of nibida, or the sense of, I've, ha- I've eaten this enough, okay, then, then there comes, as the Buddha says, then there's release. And then when, you, when the mind is released, then it goes to, a, it has, it's attained something, a well-being, which is not a feeling anymore. But there is a well-being. And then the Buddha said, okay, this, because it doesn't depend on conditions, doesn't require that you eat anymore. So what you're trying to do is learn how to feed the mind in a new way so that you can actually give it the strength that ultimately would find a well-being, a dimension where there's no more need to feed, and that's going to be the end of suffering. So it's, I think it's important that we look at the Buddha's analysis of the aggregates there, not as just a weird set of five concepts that who knows where they came from, but it actually it's relates to the way we eat. Tomorrow when you have your breakfast, look at the five aggregates that you're engaged in as you're you know, going to the cupboard. You've got this sense of hunger, I've got to eat right now. What's in the hunger? What's, what's in the cupboard? What's going to satisfy this particular hunger today? And what am I going to have to do to fix that up? Those are the five aggregates right there. And you can learn how to look at the other ways in which you're feeding yourself and see, okay, where is the stress in here? Is this really worth the effort that goes into this kind of feeding? Wouldn't it be better if I could find a better way of feeding or ultimately get so I don't have to feed at all? This is the Buddha's message when he's talking about the aggregates. He wants you to look at how you eat. Because we're not just... You know, as I say, you are what you eat. You also you are, you are how you eat. And it's not that he's imposing something on you, saying, well, this is what you are. This, this is how you're defining yourself as, as you're going through the day anyhow. He wants you to see this clearly so you can learn how to go beyond it so you don't have to keep on engaging the suffering that comes back from eating the same old way over and over and over again. So those are some thoughts I had about the top of the aggregates tonight. I hope this is helps clarify why the Buddha chose those five activities as one of the most central teachings and one of the ways that you really have to understand the process of suffering and stress if you're going to go beyond it. So, that's it. Are there any questions? Yes, is there a mic, a traveling mic? Okay. Um, this is not... Um I'm just curious, has any other person um, defined where the aggregates come from like you just did? Is this something that's ever mentioned in any of the commentaries? Um, I just assumed that it was one of the insights he had. Mm -hmm. Um, Didn't think about it ever being a conscious decision or a teaching tool. Well... I think you really do have to back up and see when the Buddha was going to teach people, he had to speak in a language they were going to understand. And this was the language he was using. Now, the, each of the five aggregates, you find, the, you find these individual terms in the philosophy that preceded him. He was the first one I know that brought them together as that set of five. Um, what got me thinking on this term was, um, was a comment made by Mahago Sananda one time. He was saying, the Buddha sees it 
everybody's eating and it made him very sad. <laughs> and you start thinking about it and you say, yeah, that was, you know, that he was right. There's a hand back here. Um, I was particularly struck by, I guess I've spent a fair amount of time recently studying the diamond approach, which is very grounded in kind of developmental psychology and mm-hmm. very early childhood experiences for how we form. And it resonates a lot with what I've encountered in my practice. And I was, I was fascinated to hear this connecting kind of Buddhist psychology with that model and felt very excited and was like, wow, that's, that's wonderful. Is there more? Do you have more thoughts or pointers on where this could be explored? Um, there's a book called Paradox of Becoming where it talks a little bit about where we pick up some of our ideas about who we are and how we identify. Um, the topic of feeding is in a book called Shape of Suffering. There's a whole chapter on that topic. As for child development, I, you know, I, I keep throwing it out here and there in my writings, and I haven't kept a, an index of where you can where you can find them. We go on to access to insight and, and write child, you know, just put child in the search box, and see what comes up. Thank you. Venerable, is the sense of fabrication in the five aggregates the same as fabrication independent origination? Okay, um, not quite. Independent independent origination, you also have bodily fabrication, which is the breath. Um, What they everything had? Are they all those have in common though? Is this element of intention? that goes into it. In the five aggregates, it's more the mental fabrication, the way you plan things and the way you manipulate the committee. The, committee, yeah. um, the word I was, I was talking, I have a friend who's a psychologist down in Southern California who was, we were talking one time about how the word manipulation has a bad rap. And there's skillful manipulation as well as unskillful. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the, part of the path, path is learning how to man- manipulate things skillfully. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite instances of this was I have two students, an American woman and a Korean woman, and they were going to go on a trip to the Himalayas one time. And it was going to be part of a group tour, and they wanted to have, take a couple of days off and do something else that was not part of the group schedule. And so the American woman called up the, the, tour, the, uh, the travel agent and wanted to make these arrangements, and after arguing with her for about half an hour, hung up, called up the Korean woman and said, looks like the trip is off. We can't get this. And the Korean woman said, could you give me her phone number? <laughs> Five minutes later, she had it. <laughs> Everything was agreed. You know? um, and the American woman accused her of manipulating the travel agent. <laughs> so. Questions? Yes. Mike. Uh, thank you for the image in the teaching. It's been it's wonderful. I'm wondering how the Brahma Viharas uh, fit into food. Is it just more good food or uh, how would it's you... More, it's more good food. It's basically, I mean, you, you gain a sense of well-being that comes from thinking about goodwill for all beings. And also, a lot of the Brahma Viharas have to do with your motivation. 
it's interesting that many of the cases where the Buddha is talking about spreading Brahma-viharas are in two cases. One, when you are being wronged, and two, when you realize you've wronged someone else. In the first case, he's saying basically you don't react, because a lot of us would tend to feed on thoughts of revenge. I've got to get back at this person, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And you know what kind of food revenge is? It's sweet, but it's not good for you. There's a New Yorker cartoon where two witches are, are sitting over a cauldron. And it's saying, it's too sweet, you put in too much revenge. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so the Buddha is saying, it's basically better for you to feed off of goodwill. I don't want to harm you. And so that, one, that you're not going to retaliate. And, so, and you find an alternative way of feeding. You say, okay, the fact that I'm not retaliating is not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of my strength. And that gives you the strength to you know, not harm in, in return. The same when you realize you've harmed other beings. It's so easy to try to deny that because you don't like to think that thought that you've been harmful. And the Buddha is saying it's much healthier to admit the harm but then resolve, I'm not going to do that again. And then you spread goodwill to everybody, including yourself. So that gives you something better to, fe to feed on. Just as a follow-up very quickly, is it um, the same in terms of looking at the process of feeding? I mean, like the four jhanas you were saying, you can also mm -hmm. sort of witness the five aggregates coming together in the process, and how does that fit with the Brahma-viharas? Okay, the Brahma-viharas, they become useful when they actually do induce that kind, of, that kind of concentration. And then you look, okay, you've got the fabrication, which, you know, thoughts of goodwill are a kind of fabrication. And then you recognize all beings as objects of your goodwill, there's the perception. And you can you could go down through and analyze that, the aggregates in that act as well. But particularly when you get the mind concentrated, the, con the state of the concentrated mind is where you're actually going to see the aggregates most clearly in action. Um, I had a question. Um, in the beginning of the talk, I thought I heard you say something about um, that Form is the process of decay? That's the Buddhist definition. It's, yeah. it's a pun in Pali. The, for, the word form is rupa and decay is rupati. So I think he's, he's playing with words there. But you know, form does decay. That's how, we, that's how we recognize it. I'd never heard that before. Yeah. Okay. Not, not needing. Not needing to feed. Yeah. That's nirvana. That? That's nirvana. But, but um, <laughs> uh, there are those moments of contentment. Okay. It turns out that you're feeding on the contentment at that moment. That point. Where you don't feel that need. There's no feeling of. There's no feeling of the experience. I mean, meaning, it's sort of like being in the zone where mm -hmm, you're not, mm -hmm. um, there are those moments where you're observing okay. not any of that. Okay, the thing so, is, we, uh, 
we, we sense the act of feeding most um, vividly when it's difficult and not when it's easy. I mean, this is, this is the, the challenge of trying to observe the mind in concentration because the feeding is very, it, it's pretty immediate, it's very, it's very easy at that point. And so at the point, so like when you're in the zone, everything is pretty effortless. So, so you don't, you're not conscious of your sense of self at that time because there's nothing standing in the way of what you want to do. And you're, and you're not conscious of the fact that you're feeding because this, this sense of well-being just keeps coming and coming and coming. And yet you're, you are actually feeding on that. Is that a bad thing? I mean, no, it's, 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 much, it's much better than going out and you know, shooting up heroin. Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> 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 no, it's just that, I mean, you, 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 that's the whole point of the path, is to get the mind to feed in better ways that are more harmless, both for yourself and for the beings around you. But eventually you want to be able to recognize, look at that too as a kind of feeding. distinction of originations mm-hmm. and could you speak more about okay, that? Okay, there's a teaching called Dependent Origination where the Buddha lays out all the steps that lead up to stress and he talks about fabrication as one of the steps. In fact after ignorance that's the first step. Um, I think it's interesting that it comes even before our sensory experience. He says we're already out there fabricating what we want and if it's based on ignorance we're going to start feeding on all the wrong things. But for him, you know, our awareness is not a passive thing where we're just kind of sitting around, not thinking about anything, and all of a sudden, bang, something comes and hits us. We're out there looking. And if, we're look, you know, if, if our looking is based on ignorance, we're looking for trouble. <laughs> so when the Buddha's talking about fabrication there, he says, it's, in that sense, he's talking about not only your fab- mental fabrication, but he's also talking about physical fabrication. Even the way you breathe can become a cause of, of suffering if you do it with ignorance. This is one of the reasons why we focus on the breath as a primary meditation object. It brings some more knowledge to the process of breathing. How can you fabricate the way your breath influences the body and make it in a, in a, in a, in a more skillful way, basically? Bring more knowledge to the process. So, does that answer your question? Not really, but it's great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, give the question again. See what <laughs> There was a distinction that you... Okay, okay. He talks, the Buddha talks about the five aggregates and uses the word f- fabrication in the five aggregates. And then in the course of dependent core arising, he also uses the word fabrication. And it doesn't have quite the same meaning. That was the point I was getting at. And it was the difference in the meaning that I was trying to understand. Right. In the five aggregates, it's purely mental. And in the, in the dependent core origination, it is physical and mental at the same time. Okay, I think we've hit our time limit. So thank you for your attention. Okay. Hope you remember this and <laughs> do something good with it, okay? <laughs>